0: Protestant Reformation and its importance, we jumping into a, a mini-series on what we call the five solas. The five solas, these are the fundamental doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, but really more importantly, they are the fundamental doctrines of the gospel as it's presented to us in Scripture. Now last week we looked at what Christians must view as their ultimate authority, Scripture alone, right? We call that sola, sola scriptura. Our authority is Scripture alone. We have sola gratia. We're justified by grace alone. We have sola fide. We are saved by faith alone. We have sola Christus. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria. All of that works together for the glory of God alone. And so this morning we come to the second sola, sola gratia. We are saved by grace alone. And as I mentioned last Sunday, right, these solas are are really pillars that encapsulate, that summarize the theological issues at the core of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, sola gratia, of course, we're saved by grace alone, and um, as, we, as we jump into our text in Scripture this morning, we're going to do a little bit of work in history, a little bit of um, understanding about what Roman Catholics believe versus what Protestants believe, uh, to help us understand why the Reformation was and continues to be necessary. Now, when we're talking about grace, there's something that we need to know. When we're talking about it in the context of the Reformation, both Protestants And Catholics agree grace is an important word. That is an important word to both Protestants and Catholics. That's true now, and it was true during the Reformation. But as is often the case, we need to define the words that we use. And when we do that, we see the different understandings between Protestants, between Catholics, on this word grace. That's okay, Linda. And these are going to be differences that ultimately affect the way the gospel is understood. The way we define grace affects the way we understand the gospel. It's very crucial that we get this right. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there now. Verses 23 through 24 is where we will be. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24 as we seek to arrive at a biblical understanding of grace and the sufficiency of God's grace for our salvation. And As we examine what sola gratia means, we will see that all of salvation is a gift that comes to us entirely because of God's grace. Romans chapter 3, 23 through 24. The Apostle Paul writes this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. i read that one more time. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The flower fades, the grass withers, but this is the word of the Lord which endures forever. Now, before we can even define grace, we need to understand the background that grace is set against, and that is sin. You may see when you go to a jeweler, they'll place that diamond against a black cloth, and it makes that diamond much more brilliant. Well, sin is the black velvet cloth that we need to look at first in order that grace may shine, in order that we might see why grace is necessary for us. The first thing we see here in Romans chapter. 3 verse 23 is that grace is necessary because of sin. Grace is necessary because of sin. If we were to back up all the way to the beginning of Romans and read Romans 1, 2, and 3, uh, we would see that the Apostle Paul has really spent this entire time discussing the universal sinfulness of mankind, of both Jew and Gentile. And so now as we come to verse 23 and 24, Paul's basically summarizing the entire first half of the book of Romans in two verses. As we look at verse 23, we see Paul makes a very universal statement. All have sinned, not some, not most, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now to summarize what's come before this portion of Romans, uh, Paul writes that the Jews, even though they had been given the law, right, the, the law of Moses, they had a unique covenant with God at Sinai, they could not keep the law. And instead what God's law did is revealed their sinfulness. It was like a standard by which they were measured and fell far short. Now, the Gentiles didn't receive a written law like the Jews did, but Paul tells us that they had the law written on their heart, right? Everybody has a conscience. Everybody's aware that there are right and wrong. Right? And, and yet, even with that, the Gentiles do not keep God's law. In, in other words, nobody on earth has kept God's law. All have sinned. And, and, and you know, we might say, okay, well, yeah, everybody makes mistakes. Right? Nobody's perfect. But that's not what Paul's saying here. That's, that's very mild. That's not what Paul is getting at. Paul's painting a much darker picture, right? Paul's not talking about having an off day here or there, being a little grumpy, a little mischievous, a little white lie or a mean word. No, Paul is getting at something much more debilitating and much more serious. First, when Paul says, all have sinned, he's, he's essentially making a statement about the natural state of humanity internally, morally, Spiritually. When Paul says all have sinned, he's describing the fact that all humans are sinners by nature. Uh, For example, if we were to flip over a couple pages to Romans chapter 1 and see the descriptors that Paul uses to describe humanity, uh, here's what we would see. We would see in verse 21, for example, that mankind, because they've rejected God, right, have become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. If we were to go down a little further to verse 24, we, we see that mankind is given up to the less of their hearts. If we were to keep going, right, we see that man exchanges the truth about God for a lie. That's man's natural disposition. Verse 26, right? We, we, you know, natural humans are given up to dishonorable passions. We keep going, right? Uh, verse 28. Given up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. If we go down to verse 32, giving approval to those who practice evil. This is no one small time sin. And this is not even really discussing behavior exclusively. It is discussing the internal, inescapable sinfulness that all humanity has. My children are very, very small. I did not teach them how to lie. I did not teach them how to steal. I did not teach them to hit their brother in anger. They figured that out all by themselves. Even from a young, 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 young age, from birth, we have that nature in us. The fundamental bent of our hearts is towards sin and away from God. Uh, some theologians call this condition total depravity, which means that there is no part of us that's not affected by sin. doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be, but it means there's no part of us that has escaped the effects of Of sin, It affects what we are, what we do, what we think, what we feel, how we talk, what we desire. All those things are affected by sin. And and, and when we think about it, right, because this is our nature, it affects what we do. The second sense of what Paul's describing here when he says all of sin is, he's describing the way that this sinful moral deadness and, and spiritual rebellion actually bears sinful fruits in our thoughts, deeds, words, actions, desires, so on and so forth. A sinful nature produces sin, like an apple tree produces apples. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines what sin is very helpfully. It says, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In 21st century English, sin is anything that doesn't align with God's law or obey God's law. Now, sin can be passive, not doing what we should do. Or sin can be active, doing what we shouldn't do. And every human being, Paul says, has sinned. Every human being has committed actions internally and externally that fly in the face of God's law, whether actively, again, or, or passively. Now, I've, I've talked to many people, and, and maybe this is where you're at, right? Maybe you're here this morning and this is kind of how you thought about yourself, right? You think you're a good person because of the things you have not done. Well, I've never robbed a bank. Never killed somebody. I've never had an affair, right? I haven't done those things, and so I'm a pretty good person. Uh, But here's the question Whose standard are you measuring yourself by? Yours or God's? It's very convenient for us to measure ourselves by our own standards because we're going to give ourselves an escape clause every time. We're always going to bring the standard down so we look okay. But when we look at God's standard, we see a very different picture. We have these two greatest commands on the wall here, right? If we just take these two, which summarize all of God's love. You can keep these two. You can keep everything else. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Have you done that? And not just have you maybe done that for a couple seconds one time. But have you done that every second of every day of your life 100%? Because here's the thing. God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't grade on a curve. It's pass or fail, 100% or nothing. Either we've kept the law, or we have not kept the law of God. And when we take that perspective, which is God's perspective revealed to us in Scripture, it becomes very quickly clear that all have sinned. It's not just that we're imperfect, it is that we are sinners from the inside out. That is the direction of our lives. Even the good deeds we do, right? Even the good deeds we do, we often do with a selfish motive deep down. Well, I'm going to do this really good thing so other people think better of me. Or I'm going to do this really good thing because I feel good when I do good things. That's still tainted by sin and selfishness, right? And Paul describes the effects of this sin Internally and externally in verse 23 at the very end. He says, we have fallen short of God's glory. In other words, man falls short of the righteous standard of God's law because of sin. And as a result, we cannot and will not obtain the glorious reward of fellowship with God in heaven. We cannot and will not obtain participation in God's glory that man was originally designed to share in. We cannot reach it. It is out of reach. In fact, because we are sinners, right, all of our best works, trying to earn our way up into heaven, trying to climb that ladder of good deeds, actually push us down further. Because the more good deeds we do to try to earn God's favor, the more good deeds we're doing tainted by sin. And so we're actually increasing the amount of sin that we have by trying to work our way to heaven. And the reality is this, friends, because we are sinners who sin, we are separated from a good, loving, holy God. And because he is just, he will and must punish sin, which biblically we are told is done through condemning sinners to hell. This is serious stuff. right? When we say all have sinned, we're not just talking about a couple little peccadillos here. We're talking about something that is devastating to our souls. And it brings up some very crucial questions. right? If, if I was hearing that, I think the first question I would think of was, how can I be made right with God? How can I, how can I, get out of this position? How can I be restored to Him? And it's at that point that grace enters the picture, right? It becomes pretty clear that, from what Paul says here, man on his own, you and I on our own, we are unable and unwilling to obey God's law, right? If we're just set off by ourselves with all that we have and our sinful nature, we're not going to do it. And if we do, we're not going to do it for the right reasons. So God must intervene. God must intervene. Man, you and I, we need a righteousness and a salvation that is from outside of us. Because everything in here is sinful. It's corrupt. right? We need something from outside of us. Grace is necessary because without it, we are lost. Let's look at the next verse and we'll unpack this some more. Paul says, That those who have sinned are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our next point is that grace is the gift of God. When we're talking about sola gratia, we're talking about grace being the gift of God to sinners. Now Paul says something wonderful here, right? This is good news. This is good news. Even though all of humanity has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, God has provided a way for man to be made right with Him. That's good news. There is a way to be justified by His grace as a gift. And there it is, the G word, right? Grace. Grace. But before we can unpack what Paul is saying here, right? Again, we're we're approaching this from the context of the Reformation. We need to take a step back and look at some definitions of grace. Because again, the way we understand it is going to dramatically affect our understanding of the gospel. Um, So again, as I mentioned, the Roman Catholic Church has always placed a very high value on grace. This was not a term that they were allergic to during the Reformation. Um, And in fact, the Catholic Church then and now would have no issue with agreeing with the phrase grace alone on paper, right? They would have no trouble using that phrase. But the difference is, what is the definition of grace? What's the definition of grace? What is grace? Because how we define grace, again, affects our understanding of the gospel. I know I keep saying it, but it's very important for us to understand. The definition given by the Roman Catholic Church in the Catholic Catechism uh, is that grace is favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God, adoptive sons, partaker of the divine nature, and eternal life. Now, evaluate that definition in your mind for a second. On the surface, okay, maybe that sounds pretty good, right? Let's look a little closer. Grace is referred to here as God's help. Free and undeserved, but help. It's God's help. Okay, And it's that help that is a crucial difference between what Protestants believe in sola gratia and what Catholics believe in sola gratia. Right? So uh, one thing we need to understand about Catholicism, and a lot of Protestants don't know this or don't understand this, right but Catholicism is a sacramental religion. Sacramental religion. And what that means in practice is that the Roman Catholic Church over time has identified seven sacraments baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, uh, confession, penance, anointing of the sick, marriage, and ordination. And, and these sacraments are things that in the Catholic view, right, God is commanded and designed to be channels of His grace, you could say, right? Um, because part of the way that the Roman Catholic Church looks at grace is that it is like a substance. It's like a spiritual substance. So, so in other words, when a person's baptized into the Roman Catholic Church, right, they believe that God infuses them with grace, kind of like filling up water in a cup, right? They're filled with grace. And as they go through life, they choose to partake of these sacraments. And as they partake of the sacraments, as they go to Mass, right, or, or do penance or confession, as they take the Eucharist, as, right, they get married, those things. As they partake in those sacraments, God fills them with more grace, more grace, right? More and more and more over time. And as that happens, their soul becomes so filled with grace that when they die, it's pleasing to God. When Catholic theologian states that the church teaches that only souls that are objectively good and objectively pleasing to God merit heaven. And such souls are ones filled with sanctifying grace. Now you can lose that grace if you commit a mortal sin and you have to start all the way from the bottom again, right, to fill up that, that grace. But the Catholic understanding of justification That word that Paul's used here um, is really the process of renewal and sanctification of the soul. So in Catholic theology, justification is something that makes you better and better and better. It makes your soul better and better and better. So this phrase justified by his grace is a gift that we see in Romans 3.23 in the teaching of the Catholic Church is that we have to cooperate with the grace that God fills us with by partaking of the sacraments. That's what brings us to heaven, right? Uh, Since our cooperation In receiving that grace through the sacraments means our souls are made more pleasing to God. Does that make sense so far? You get more grace by doing the sacraments. The more grace you have, the more pleasing you are to God, right? If we had to boil it down, that's what it comes down to. So the Catholic position of grace alone means you are saved by grace, right? But that you have to go get the grace in the sacraments. We have to ask, is that really grace alone or is that grace plus? Grace plus human effort, right? It's not grace alone, strictly speaking. It is grace plus, that grace that God provides plus your effort in going to get it. If you choose not to go partake of the sacraments, you will not have that grace. And the sacramental view of grace is very similar to what Luther and the Reformers were dealing with in their day as well. And the Protestant view of both justification and grace is much different than the Catholic view. For Protestants, justification is not our work, and grace is not a substance. Justification is God's saving declaration of forgiveness and righteousness towards sinners that flows out of His gracious nature. So let's go back to our text, and we'll kind of unpack this a little bit more. Paul tells us in verse 24 that sinners are justified by God's grace as a gift. Paul talks about justification all over the place, especially in Romans and in Galatians. And um, one particular place that is helpful to clarify what is justification is Romans 5.16. Turn over there just a page Romans 5.16. Paul is talking here about how Adam's sin has plunged uh, plunged us into sinfulness and condemnation. And comparing that with the work of Christ, here's what Paul writes. And the free gift is not like the result of that one's man's sin. Here, here we go here. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So we have in this verse a clear statement on the true nature of justification. Does it have to do with the condition of our souls, like the Catholic view would, would teach, or does it have to do with something else? Well, let me draw your attention to three things here. First, Paul uses the word judgment here. That is a driving word. It is a legal word. Right? Paul there is talking about God judging man's failure to obey the law, to obey his commands. That is a, a legal word, God's verdict of guiltiness for our sin. So judgment there refers to our standing in relation to God's law, not the, um, the objective state of our soul per se. Second, notice that Paul uses the word condemnation, right? What did that judgment bring? Condemnation. That is a legal term here too, relating to God's law. Condemnation is the sentence we deserve for our sin and sinfulness. This is what the judge has said we are going to pay or what our sentence is. And so when we get to justification at the end of the verse, we probably should understand it in that same context, right? In the context of God's law, a legal context. And this it's at the heart of what the Protestant view of justification is. A justification is the declaration by God that a sinner is forgiven and counted as righteous in regards to God's law. Justification is when God looks at a sinner and says, I am going to credit you. I'm going to put in your account, we could say, a perfect righteousness, perfect obedience of my law. I'm going to look at you as if you had kept my law perfectly. That's something that God says about us. The Catholic view, of course, is justification is something you increase in or decrease in as you grow or shrink in your quantity of grace. But the Protestant view, and I would say what Paul is presenting to us here, is that justification is a once-for-all declaration made by God in the courtroom of heaven that forever counts us as having obeyed His law perfectly. And we'll get to how that's even possible in a minute. But just to compare and contrast a little more, right? In the Catholic view, justification happens inside your soul. But in the Protestant view, justification is an external event, outside of us. You can lose your justification in Catholicism, but in Protestantism, and I would say, again, in the picture that paints, this painted for us in Scripture, you cannot lose your justification. God does not take back his declaration of forgiveness. Praise God for that. And that brings us to the next word here. Justified by his Grace as a gift, right? Grace as a gift. Now we get to see where grace fits in here. Right? If we were to find grace, if we were to define grace here, we would say it is the saving action that God takes towards sinners because of His character and nature. It's the saving action God takes towards sinners because of His character and nature. That's what grace is. Why would a holy, righteous, just God move towards sinners to save them, to save us, while we are in a state of rebellion. Because that's who he is. He is a gracious God. That's his nature. He tells Moses on Mount Sinai, right? Here's how God describes himself. He says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There it is. That graciousness is such an integral part of who God is. It makes it in the The supreme definition of His nature and character in Scripture. He is a gracious God. And because He is gracious, He shows grace. He shows undeserved kindness to sinners by giving us what we do not earn. The only way that sinners are justified, declared righteous, made right with God, Paul says, is not contingent on our cooperation or our choice or our going to receive this Thing or that thing—it's not contingent on the sacraments of the church, but on what God's grace. That's it. That's the only thing that makes the cut here. Justified by His grace. Now, remember what we saw in verse 23: We're dead in sin, bent away from God, spiritually darkened and blind, and rebellious. And if, if we're going to take the Bible seriously, there, if we're going to accept what the Bible says at face value about how bad and depraved, we naturally are, then we must agree that it is impossible for man to take the first step towards God. If all have sinned, they will not by themselves move towards God. We won't do it. We can't do it. If all have sinned, we must come to the conclusion that we are helpless, powerless to save ourselves and to make that first move towards God. We can't even want to go to receive the grace that's out there unless something changes in us first. And so it is that the only way man's salvation is possible is through God's grace, through God making the first move towards sinful man. And this, uh, this move God makes is actually something that happens before time began. Turn over to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, verses twenty-nine through thirty. Paul gives us an amazing window into the working of heaven here, into what God does. Now, we have our experiences of how we come to Christ, but Paul is saying, hey, look, here's what's really going on behind the scenes. It's an amazing thing we read here. Uh, In verse 29, here's what we read. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. We we could probably spend eight weeks just in those two verses, right? There is so much there. So much there. But when we read that, even just at face value, even just at a glance, it becomes indisputably, indisputably clear that God is the initiator. The author and the finisher of our salvation. Paul tells us he is doing this. He is doing this. He is doing this. From from being foreknown to being glorified, God is the active agent here. Paul does not describe a scenario in which God puts the grace on the table and you have to go get it. That's not what is described here for us. That is more like the Catholic view than what we see here in Paul. Uh, what we see in this text is that God is the one applying that salvation to His people according to His purposes. He is the one that foreknows. He is the one that predestines. He is the one that calls. he's the one that justifies. He is the one that glorifies. It's Him from beginning to end. And again, I wish we could spend more time here. We will in our fellowship groups. Just, just wait. But what it tells us is that God chooses whom He will save according to His grace. And that anyone's salvation is not dependent ultimately on their choice, but God's. That doesn't take away our free choice in following Him and choosing to become Christians. That's real. But we must understand that God's gift of grace is not attached to anything we do or anything in us. It cannot be. And Scripture does not paint such a picture. In fact, what we see is that the mere ability to savingly trust Christ and repent of our sin, that itself is a gift from God. Because here's the reality. If God does not change our will in our hearts, we will not choose Him. Again, if all have sinned, if all are truly dead in sin, God must change us before we can come to Him. The prophet Ezekiel speaks about this work that God alone can do in Ezekiel eleven nineteen 19-20. This is the new covenant here, and, and, and listen to what God says He's going to do. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone. That's that spiritually dead sinful heart that we have. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh in order that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. That picture there of God taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, we call that being born again. We call that being regenerated. That's the event where God gives a sinner a new spiritually alive heart, and they go from death to life. When they have a heart that will and can see the glory of Christ, see their need for Christ, and turn in faith and repentance to Christ because it is now spiritually alive. God is the one doing that work on His initiative. Now, it's a common view today, right? And this ties to grace. It's a common view today that you are born again after you choose to follow Jesus, right? Um, That you believe in Jesus, you repent of your sin, and then you are born again and filled with the Spirit. But biblically, this is not possible. This is not possible. Again, we've seen in the first three chapters of Romans, we see in Ephesians chapter 2 and Titus chapter 3, that we are so dead in sin and totally depraved that we cannot and will not choose God unless we receive a new heart. So really, the order of salvation is we, we must be born again, which God does in His timing and in His way. And then we are able to turn in faith and repentance to Christ. And why is this important? This isn't just you know, abstract theology. This is actually very, very important because it highlights God's grace towards sinners. As Paul writes in Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like God does not wait for us to come to a certain position of goodness or to come to a spiritual sense where we're going to make a good choice before we receive those gracious gifts in Christ. When you and I were out running around living our lives of rebellion and sin, whether that be an open depravity or whether that's a religious moral self-righteousness, whatever it is, when we were far from God and, and really when we were His enemies, as the Bible describes us, while we were sinners... The Bible paints a picture that God in His free and sovereign will chose to save us and apply that salvation to us. God did that of His own free will. God did not throw a life preserver to a drowning man. That's not what salvation is. No, salvation is God went into the depths of the ocean to bring up our spiritual corpses and breathe new life into it. That's grace. That is radical Grace, and, and, and taking such a view of grace as the Bible describes for us is, is difficult sometimes for us because in our experience of salvation, right, we do make a free choice. We do turn to Christ consciously in faith and repentance, right? We're, we're not robots or puppets on a string or anything like that. But what we have to do is understand that our experience of salvation doesn't govern what God tells us he does in salvation, right? Right? So this is grace, what we see here. It is all of God. It is a pure gift, Paul says. This gift of justification, of being counted as righteous, is not something we could ever be capable of earning. It is a gift given by a gracious God to undeserving sinners according to His purpose. Not our decision. Again, grace is not a substance. It is God's gracious work towards sinners. We we often define grace as receiving something we don't deserve, and that's true. We receive the gift of salvation, of righteousness from God, given to us freely. But, but here's the thing, right? Sometimes, we as evangelicals, we do the grace plus thing. We end up saying, well, you know, I need to cooperate with God's grace in order to be saved. I need to cooperate with God's grace in order to be born again. I need to yield or surrender in order to receive the new birth and be saved. That's Again, when we look at it, that's more Catholic than it is Protestant, right? We've already seen why this is impossible for us to cooperate with God's grace before we are saved. But it should make all of us consider and ask, is my understanding of God's grace and salvation grace alone or grace plus? Is it grace alone or grace plus? Are we willing to accept the fact that God is the one who has redeemed us from beginning to end? Or do we insist that we must place ourselves in the equation somewhere? We must Have a part in there somewhere. That we are adding something to God's work. Grace alone or grace plus? Not grace plus good works, not grace plus surrender, not grace plus anything. We are saved by God's grace alone, exclusively, by itself. God's grace needs nothing added to it to work. God is the active party in our salvation. As as R.C. Sproul said, we had nothing but our sin that made salvation necessary to the equation, right? That's all we're bringing to the table is our sin. But many people struggle with this, right? How is it just for God to declare sinners righteous who are not actually righteous? Because that's what justification is. How does God get away with doing that? And in fact, this was and continues to be the main criticism of the Catholic Church against the Reformers. It's a legal fiction. God's just making up a legal scenario that's not true, right? He's declaring us righteous when we're not really that way. But such a criticism ignores what Paul says at the end of verse 24, that where does this gracious gift of justification come to us, and how is it made possible? Look what he says, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh, lived a perfect life in full obedience to God's law. He was perfectly righteous in every way. All have sinned except Christ. Yet Christ went to the cross for us, as Peter says, bearing our sins in his body, taking our sins to the cross, and willingly suffering the penalty that you and I deserved. Did you and I ask him to do that? No. Grace at work. And what happens is that Christ actually gives his people His righteousness, that righteous life he lived, that's what gets put in our accounts. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take that sin that you have in your account and and exchange it. I'm going to pay for that sin and give you my righteousness instead as a gift. And as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, right? For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is grace at work because of what Jesus has done. God's justice has been satisfied at the cross. Those sins, they must be punished. But Christ took our place in that punishment. And what remains for us is the declaration of righteousness given to us through Jesus' work. Justification is not legal fiction, it is legal provision. And we have accomplished none of it. We've contributed none of it. All we do is simply receive it by faith. And even that, that faith requires God's gracious enabling. So from beginning to end, brothers and sisters, our salvation is a gift from God made possible to us through the work of Christ. And this doctrine of sola gratia, that we are saved by grace alone, as lofty as it is, has some real world implications. Too briefly as we come to a close. First, consider the way that we really believe in sola gratia, that that's what our salvation is based on. Think how that should affect the way we interact with other human beings. If God has been gracious to us and kind towards us and forgiving us, should we not be quick to forgive others? Ephesians 4.32 instructs us, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Because of God's grace to us, should we not show it to others? And second, it's a point of application through our understanding of what God's grace is, right? Even though, again, we we have our experience of salvation, how that actually plays out in our lives. But when we see that God is the one responsible for our salvation, sola gratia takes any opportunity that we might have to boast in ourselves right out of our hands. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. We read Ephesians 1 as our scripture reading. And again, we saw that phrase. All of that works to the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. And so as we consider the depths of God's grace to us. By saving sinners like us. That should be where we are led to in our worship. Praising Him, boasting in Him, reveling and proclaiming His glorious grace. So sola gratia then radically affects how we understand salvation, our relationships with others, which in turn, those things radically affect our worship and the glory we give to God. May we give Him all glory forever and ever to the praise of His glorious grace by which we are saved alone. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us, Lord, that while we were in the depths of our sins, spiritually dead, you rescued us and redeemed us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to your mercy and grace. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand just a little bit more today your grace towards us. And Lord, that as we understand that, it would draw us closer to you. And that we would exalt your name all the more. for We have none to boast in but you. We thank you, Lord, that our salvation is ultimately in your hands. Lord, that we do not need to fear losing it or increasing or decreasing in it, but that we are saved by grace alone. And that grace is yours. Lord, we thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.